Hello, and welcome to this episode of Such a Nightmare, Conversations About Horror. My name is Catherine Troyer, and I am so excited to once again be joined by Tony Tresca. Hey there. This is a podcast where the horrifically nerdy meets the terrifyingly academic, as we explore that fine line between the horrific and the horrible. Each episode looks at a specific horror text that is for better or worse, giving us nightmares. And we are so excited to have you join us today for our episode on 2006's Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon. I'm so glad we are finally doing an episode on Behind the Mask. I've been wanting to talk to you about this film for a while, but I've also been worried to talk to you about it because, you know, I was afraid that you wouldn't like it. And if you didn't like it, you were going to have to be dead to me. So, you know. (laughs) And your partner. And my partner. Yeah. Yeah. When we were rewatching the movie last night and she was like, Tony better like this film. And I was like, okay. And it was like, or else. And I was like, I don't know what to do with this. And I'm just going to have to cross my fingers. But good news. Well, I guess we have our own behind the mask situation. Yeah, no if joke. I hadn't liked it. Yeah. Yeah. We, we would <laughs> quote, invite you over sometime and you'd be like, sure. And then, you know, death. Instead of, but instead of, uh, obviously, instead of doing like a mockumentary uh, film like they do, you and Steph could then do a, a podcast yeah, documentary of the killing of me. Yes. But I did like the film. Spoiler Yay. Yay. Uh, so I guess to be a boy, I avoid dying today. Huzzah. But there's plenty of, of time later. Yeah, I have plenty of chances to get myself disowned and kicked yeah. out of the tro- out of the Troyer <laughs> household. Yes, so many opportunities. <laughs> Speaking of spoilers, would you go ahead and give us a brief summary that you always manage to somehow make spoiler free of Behind the Mask? Absolutely. So Behind the Mask is it's mostly shot as a documentary film, and it's set in a world in which slasher characters. They really, they exist. They run around. Freddy is out there killing in your dreams. Uh, Maybe Michael Myers is going to sneak up behind you. But we're not following any of those big bads. We are instead following a character in small town Maryland, who is Leslie Vernon, calls himself. And we see this character through the lens of a journalist named Taylor Gentry and her camera people. And basically, we kind of just get a how-to slasher behind the scenes with this guy until bum, 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 something happens and the script <laughs> gets flipped. And that's all I'll say for our non-spoiler section yes. of this. I love how you managed to, to completely avoid all spoilers and in, in the summaries that you do, because it's like both perfect but it also hopefully i mean we're just gonna spoil it within within moments of you finishing the summary but i love it i just want to give people a chance like you know i i don't know maybe there's someone out there who is like listening to this intro to like try to be convinced whether or not they're gonna watch it and uh that's who those are for now obviously we are as as katie just mentioned we are gonna spoil the hell out of this yeah. in just a second but you know <laughs> One of the things I really love about this film is that you can just tell that the the filmmakers love the genre, right? And they're they're really interested in in paying homage to slashers and to horror. And this isn't the first time that we've talked on on this podcast about 
you know, texts that are really sort of looking at this meta postmodern examination of the genre. And the one it reminds me the most of, which came after, of course, Behind the Mask is, is Grady Hendrix's The Final Girl Support Group. Oh, interesting. That's a, I think that's a fantastic example of kind of like these deconstructions, but also these one, this wonderful like kind of reimagining of the same tropes that make the slasher genre so successful. I would say I was thinking of perhaps maybe a little bit more cynical, a cynical adaptation uh, that came a couple of years later, The Cabin, at, Cabin the in the ca- Woods. Cabin in the Woods. Yeah. Which similarly, I think, deconstructs the genre. I don't know if anyone would call that movie made with like a ton of love. It is very well made and very well structured, but like it's got a, like a bit of a cynical feel to it. Whereas this yeah, one, it I think, definitely like, does. feels like you like it's very much a love letter to people who like the genre. I think the reason for me that I thought of Hendrix's book is that there's a lot of behind the mask that is asking us about what our role is, right? And then where we fall into things. And, and you know, we are the tailor in, in many respects. And I would hope, I would really hope that if I were to be a reporter and I were to be following someone that I would, you know, be like, hey, no, maybe we shouldn't kill people. But I watch horror films all the time, right? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm always watching narratives about, about bodies being destroyed. And there's that one line that one of the blonde girls, the one who gets pulled up into the loft of the barn to be killed, she says, please tell me, you know, what happens to me? You know, and she's like, do I even matter? And I just think about, you know, the fact that that character never seems to matter in in the genre. Uh, So I think that's for me, why I linked it more to Hendrix. But I, I think your point about it also being that Cabin in the Woods is just more cynical is also a very accurate statement. Because I think that they are fairly similar in ter- like in terms of like offering you that kind of like behind the scenes how it happens kind of yeah. approach to the genre but this one is definitely i think it still feels a bit more loving to that formula rather than feeling a need to like blow it up with like a literal apocalypse with cabin at the end of the cabin in the woods yeah Cabin in the Woods. So we have this organization, right? The shadowy underground organization that's orchestrating everything very clinically, right? To the point they have a betting pool, you know, that they're just like, okay, release the the pheromones and things like that. Whereas Leslie is so excited, right? Exactly. For better or worse, he is like really excited. And he has his mentor who he goes to to discuss his craft and get better at what he does. He really does. He has like a a deep love for it. And this conversation and comparison is also really making me want to do just a full episode on Kevin in the Woods someday where we could talk about that. Yeah, that actually we should. We should just do that maybe as our next one in between our Friday the 13th cycles. That sounds like it'll be fun. And it'll be nice Yay. to kind of like talk about that after our conversation about this. Because I think that they they play with similar themes. And so I'm kind of curious. So with some of the films we talk about, there's not always as much like academic conversation going on with the text at play. But this one kind of seems like a it's a cult classic. It kind of it it's got it seems like it's got a lot of love within the academic and media community. So are there any articles about it? What are they saying? What's the conversation like? Yeah, there there are. There's an entire uh, essay in the really well-known journal studies and popular culture that that is explicitly and entirely about behind the mask and, and the piece is by dr savannah teague and it's called ahab's turtles and survivor girls postmodernism and behind the mask the rise of leslie vernon which makes sense 
And what I like about this article is that Teague really does an excellent job of sort of explaining how this text is situated as a postmodern text and also as a text that's just aware of the genre. And so one of the things she says early on, and she says, behind the mask takes the idea that, and then this is a quote on, on genre studies, genre is an object that is composed of a collection of films that are related to one another through their common possession of an essentially invariant narrative pattern. That's the end of the quote. And then she continues and says, and the film acknowledges that narrative tradition follows it and yet somehow manages to produce something wholly different. And I think that's a really good sort of way of, of explaining what Behind the Mask gives us because it is hitting, like you said, until the script sort of flips itself. It's following all of our slasher films pretty much beat by beat. And we're seeing that, you know, in the world of, of Leslie Vernon, at least, all of these things are intentionally designed by our slasher. And then she talks about, uh, Teague talks about someone that we've talked about in this podcast episode before. And that is like the person that you talk about when you're going to talk about postmodern uh, horror. And that is Isabel Christina Pinedo. And the postmodern horror film transgresses the rules of the classically oriented horror film, but it also retains the features of the latter, which form a backdrop against which violations of the rules are intelligible as such. So what Pinedo is saying and, and what Teague is, is arguing is true for Behind the Mask is that these postmodern texts exist as a narrative, right, with the older films. And the narrative only makes sense if you understand both the traditional horror films, but also how the, these postmodern films are, are breaking from it. And Teague just really kind of deconstructs and look at how this film is serving as a postmodern text and and also reminding us that we have a lot of different viewpoints happening because so much of it is from Taylor's point of view. Literally, the camera is often you know showing us what she would see until suddenly it's not, right? Until yeah. towards the end when we return back to that omniscient camera point of view. And one of the things she says that I think explains why this is such a beloved film, particularly even in higher ed, is that she really argues that, you know, Taylor is not just the final girl, she's the academic. And she's the, the academic intrigued by the genre almost against her will, right? And that she's invested in this in a way that is both very true to how academics study the genre, right? As something that's like, you know, yes, this is terrible, but we're still going to look at it anyway. But she's also the final girl, right? And But she's She's simultaneously the traditional final girl in that we get the impression that she's, you know, a virgin. She refuses to drink earlier in the film, but she also is, she's older, right? She's culpable, right? She agrees to to partake in, in Leslie's actions. I mean, in seemingly, she probably reached out. Like, not only is she culpable, like, she probably, she like, probably made the first move. Exactly. Yeah, she, there's that line when she figures out that it's her. And she's like, he's been planning this all along. He knew me, you know, he he knew who I was before I even reached out. And so, yeah, she's very culpable in yeah. a way that, you know, certainly Nancy and Lori are not. That's what Teague is, is sort of looking at. And she talks about the fact that this film really is a fan favorite, but it's also an academic favorite. And she sort of ends her essay by talking about, she says, critical detachment is not entirely possible when one cares about one's subject matter. In confronting this dilemma of academic slash professional integrity and the pleasure one finds as a fan, Behind the Mask breaks down the dichotomy between fan discourse and academic discourse, allowing them to merge. 
in that the film also blends humor with references and tropes acknowledgement within its own genre, it took the changes in horror brought to the 1990s and continues to examine them. And I, I think that that's true, that this film success lies in its ability to be an amalgamation, right? Is it a horror or a comedy? Yes. Is it a mockumentary or like a traditional film? Is, yeah. is Taylor <laughs> culpable or innocent? Yes, right? It, there's just so much of this that is meant to be about that that blurring of the boundaries. I think that's a really fascinating like way into it. And it's actually one of the interesting, one of the things not so sure I quite bought into about the film was that kind of change that happens in the third act when we suddenly drop the kind of buy-in, I guess, of the of the mockumentary format in which it, it is all essentially being filmed. Perhaps it is just I don't because I'm like watching it to talk about it. But I was mm-hmm. just I noticed it really immediately. And I was kind of like, rather than like draw me in in kind of a tone shift, like a genre shifting way, as the author's kind of is suggesting here, it kind of for me in in immediately watching it took me out of it. And I was like, what's going on? Who is filming mm. this? And I think that this is a much more interesting way to think about it, or it's an, at least another way to think about it. We have two instances, really, where where we revert back to our sort of third person POV omniscient camera. And that's the scene in the library, right, where after Leslie says, you know, I'm going to put the newspaper down and then she she finds the newspaper and then she asks the librarian to explain it during that moment right before uh the ahab shows up right it that is right. also just the traditional pov which is makes sense in in retrospect if you remember that you know he said he's setting up a red herring he says that the red herring is for kelly but of course the red herring's really for for taylor i guess i didn't and i don't know how i would have felt the first time i've saw this because I've seen this film so many times but I to me I liked that that sort of break in in the narrative because it forced me to remember that like the cameras are always artificial right and that you know we always pretend that so many films we pretend that the camera is just this like omniscient viewpoint but it's always somebody telling us what they want us to see what they want us to accept you know and and that's I think to me that's important right I think it's an interesting reading of it, and I wonder if on rewatching it, it won't necessarily bother. It would. It wouldn't necessarily bother me, or like even like stick out to me at all. Because I'm like, now that you're now that you're saying that, I'm kind of like, okay, I can I see what they're kind of doing there, and I don't know if it would have been because I'm like, I don't know if the solution then would have been to have like anybody comment or say that out loud because like, right, right, that's not like, yeah, I don't know. I'll just I'll, that's something interesting, fascinating to think about. Yeah, because the the other time that we have the omniscient point of view is when Leslie is describing what he's going to do. So to answer your question of like, who is filming? I think the slasher genre is filming, you know, like as I mean, that's what we're getting. It's rather than humans. It's just the slasher genre. And I guess that is like what I I get. I think that kind of this kind of thing is like what I'm a little bit uncertain of is who it's performing for is it and like i think it's just a little bit muddled in terms of like because leslie has himself as a character is also making all this up and is seemingly he's made he's not this he's not who he says he is he's not he doesn't have this connection to this town 
to this family's town and this dark event that happened here. That's all a lie. He's just like someone who does have a very real mental disorder and was seeking treatment for that, but then attached himself to this story. So then I think I just, it begs to question, and with this shift and like, who is it performing for? Why do we tell these stories? And I don't think that's necessarily a critique. It's just something that it's, yeah. it makes me think about. And I'm not 100% sure because the, the Leslie's response in the third act is he's like, I, ju- I do this because I, I, gotta, I gotta be a bad guy, essentially. Yeah. Like, I gotta provide the world with, like, evil. You're a journalist, mm-hmm. he jokes. And it's a funny line, but I think it does reveal kind of, like, a little bit of, like, shallowness in terms of depth there that I'm like, I wish it had gone just a hair deeper. And I think the camera is what started making me think in that direction because I was like, I'm not 100% sure why this change is happening. You're, I think your reading is compelling, but I'm not, I didn't get that from just watching it myself. And this is, this is the other reason that I thought of Grady Hendrix's novel, because I think that it is a near impossible task to fully pull off a meta narrative like this, right? Where you were asking us to both have a character in the narrative that is the audience to whom things are being performed, and then to remind us that we are the audience, right? That we are the tailors and that we, yeah. we are as culpable as anyone else. And that's, it's, I think it's a really hard thing to pull off without going deeper. And like you said, there's this element where, you know, Leslie is, we realize that Leslie's not actually Leslie Vernon. And we knew all along he was making stuff up, right? But we didn't realize the degree to which he was making things up. Until, of course, you know, Doc Holleran's like, that's not even who he is. And I don't think it necessarily, like, I think it's also okay, like, if they're just like, people be evil sometimes. But then that also, that does just kind of like, I think, limit some of the thematic depth. I think you're fat. That's such a fantastic comparison to Grady Hendrix, because if if people listen back to that episode, they'll remember that we had a similar discussion of the last like 60 pages in which we were like such a fantastic premise that got really rushed into this like kind of like Mm -hmm. more conventional uh, conventional third act that kind of felt like a little bit more quickly paced than the rest of the novel and we we were like perhaps it might have been better if we had spent a little bit more time there and i i do wonder i know that like it's a comedy and so it wants to keep things kind of brisk and moving along but i do wonder if perhaps just like a minute or two more on this subject might have benefited it. And perhaps yeah, this I think is something we could have gotten could... about 15 minutes more, right? Like, yeah. Cause yeah. I, I don't think that this film was ever, it didn't ever wear its welcome on me. Like I wasn't ever, I didn't get bored, which is, no. you know, sometimes I can't always say that with every film we watch for this podcast. Yeah. One of the things that I think this film does right from the beginning that will at least intrigue horror fans and and people familiar with the genre is that there are always new nuggets, new bits that are just sort of there. We have the little girls playing jump rope in their communion dresses. We have a cameo by Kane Hodder, but he's on on Elm Elm Street, Street, you know, and (laughs) yeah. And like the fact that Kane Hodder was willing to to come in and, and do that cameo. Of course, we have Robert England, which is fantastic. And I want to say, but I, I don't remember how I found this film because this, because I've I've had this film part of my life for for a very long time kind of before I was 
really into horror. It was just one of those films I'd seen. And I want to say that I saw this film before I completely understood who Robert England was, or at least I didn't fully recognize him out of out of makeup, you know, as as Freddie. But like he's in it. Yep. But we also have like so many of those early images are look exactly like the early images in, in Blair Witch Project. We have, you know, all of these little things like the when he's like, well, do you know how hard it is to walk slowly while you're really running? You know, I mean, there's just so many like little tidbits that if you are a fan of slashers will keep you intrigued just to see what they're going to do next. Right. Absolutely. And I do think that that is kind of the best thing about it is kind of like it's love for the tropes that it, it, it will kind of trot out. And it, it's a clear love for the genre overall. And there's this really fantastic article that Kevin Hoover wrote for Horror Obsessive, where he got to sit down with the film's star, uh, Nathan That's Bethel, cool. who plays Leslie Vernon. As, I think just because like we, we were talking before we started recording, just because it's such a cult favorite, the stars and filmmakers are so willing to sit down for these really awesome interviews. And so they yes. just get to, they share all this fantastic information. And in this article, uh, he actually reveals that he himself was not a super big fan to the horror genre before, but he That's became funny. a super big fan after working on this because of how his experience working with David Stevie, the writer, and Scott Glosherman, who is the director, and just like their love for the genre was so evident throughout the filmmaking process. And he revealed in his interview that it was always like an essential part of the film was to get these horror legends into the film. So like they were like they were adamant that they had to get Robert England involved in this project somehow. And they wanted to get as many people from the horror genre in here. And they even included things like references, even if they weren't direct, like you had mentioned so many there. Another one that I thought was really fantastic was they kind of modeled the mentor character off of the Black Christmas villain. And oh, they kind of used that relationship. And the reason he was not, he was kind of unnamed and forgotten was they were like, because Black Christmas is the model for so many things, That's but funny. itself is forgotten and not, and you often like don't remember it in conversation. And I just That's thought great. that was like, it's like those little details that, and like, this commitment to that show its commitment and love for the genre and like make the first two acts, which, you know, I mean, they're not doing like the article itself jokes that it, its opening line is originality is dead. And then it goes on to be like, <laughs> nothing's new. We're like trotting out tropes, but that's not a problem. And I couldn't right. agree more because it's so well paced and done with all this love. And we also have Zelda Rubenstein in it, right? Who, uh, yes. you know, was, is first off fantastic. She was in the Poltergeist films and, you know, also a very recognizable character. And it's like, how amazing is it that they got, you know, the people they did to just be in what was, I mean, it's a stars film, right? Like it's, it's not, it's not this big film. The other yeah. actors, you know, I mean, the actor who played Taylor, Angela Gothals, she was in like Home Alone as a kid, but like, not most of them have not been in, in other stuff or this is the thing they're kind of known for, except for <laughs> Zelda Rubenstein, Robert yeah. England, Kane Hodder uh, that are that are making these appearances. I think you're right, though. I love the ways that this film shows us that everything that we see in a slasher film, right, really is like beat for beat the same. You know, 
And of course, they have their sort of made up languages of like the Ahab and they use survivor girl instead of final girl. But we're seeing like, how come the axe always breaks on the first swing? Well, because they go in and they prepare for it. Why do the lights always fail? Because they've rigged it up, you know, and and all of that. And then I think it also shows this deeper scholarly approach to the genre, or at least like expert fan approach with like yes. it's it's commentaries about like him setting up like the womb inside oh the gosh. shed <laughs> and like yes. him being like you'll notice that they never none of the original final girls they didn't kill with a gun they used yeah. a phallic object which is of course yes. that's referencing that disgusting piece of scholarship these that we always talk about yeah. on here which I, I cannot remember the name of the scholar at the moment Carol Clover, her body himself. Her body, that's right. And and then, of course, um, and then a, the tunnel that's set up for the, yes. the birthing yes. <laughs> canal. And, the, and, the, and, you know, the use of the Yannick imagery and stuff. There's a, a line that Taylor says, there are two lines that I always laugh at because I, I never remember when they're going to come. The first is when they're in the library and Leslie's like, Paradise Lost? Found it, you know, Found and he it. just pulls the book out. <laughs> But the other one that always cracks me up is when when Leslie's explaining all of this, you know, sexualized interpretation of things. Taylor's like, so does that mean that you're pro-life? You know, and, and it's it's a hysterical line because first off, she asks it so seriously. You know, she's she's got her like journalist face on where she's got her finger on her chin, you know, and there's just this pause where like. Leslie's like, I'm not sure what to do with this. And everyone else is kind of quiet too. But that's what horror scholarship inevitably does, right? Is that we we push things to a degree that that feels both correct, right? It, it is possible to read the terrible place, as Clover names it, time yeah. and again is something that is is awfully similar to, you know, as Leslie says, girl parts, right? Girl parts, yeah. It's- <laughs> but... On the other hand, it's like you said, it's kind of icky and, and it's it's hard. It's really hard for me to do psychoanalytic scholarship because it's always like sometimes it's just an axe. Sometimes it's not a, a penis, right? Like unless Some, you're yeah. unless you're Freud and then it's always that. Exactly. And that's what we're getting in here. And I think that those conversations are just so fantastic. And they get that because we have the viewpoint character of the of this journalist who by definition, has to kind of take this seriously. Mm-hmm. And it's just like asking these questions that like you may ask in the back of your mind during like a horror yes. thing, but then you realize in asking it, doesn't that ruin the thing itself? And yes. I think that that is both hilarious as like an ob- like a oh, someone who watches horror to kind of do and have that character in there. And it's also just like, it then just allows you to kind of appreciate what's going on again in a way that I don't think it would if you're just like maybe trotting out the tropes and you don't have like this journal, like a character like the journalist to ask these kind of questions of and yes. get inside Leslie's head. And we've been talking a lot, particularly in our Friday the 13th examinations, about this need to adhere to a formula because the formula has been at least financially, but but also in terms of horror successful, while also feeling the need to break it or to say that it doesn't work right. And there's this constant tension in slasher films 
with this with this formula, right? Do you give in and just do the beats that everyone's expecting? Or do you try something different and then get ridiculed for trying something different? Or do you try something different and then truly think you're going to win an Oscar, even <laughs> though you're clearly probably not going to? And and I think that this film is is allowing us to ask all of these questions so that by the time we get to some of the the films we have today, you know, the A24 films particularly, right, we're still seeing a lot of, of beats that are very familiar to us in the genre, but in a way that can say, we can do this because you already know the formula, right? We can use that as our shorthand and then quickly go beyond that. And that's, you know, I don't want to say that like this movie walked so that other movies could run because I think that's giving this film a little bit more credit than it has. But this movie is situated at a time when we're getting ready as, as a horror community of scholars and of fans to say, okay, great, what now? I think that's an interesting place to position it because it is kind of, it's in a very interesting place in terms of timeline release-wise, like 2006. So mm-hmm. we're kind of after all of the big the heavyweights, as they kind of call them, in here, horror franchise. And we're after a comic reboot kind of witty observational slasher of the genre scream so we're we are in that we're kind of in that area before as you mentioned more of this like trauma-based or new wave a24 more jordan peele voices in the horror community kind of start emerging and coming to the forefront so it's a really interesting time and i think you might be right to point to it as like an important film developmentally, at least for a lot of people who make and take in horror, because mm-hmm. this is a film that is frequently referenced by people within the horror community as being one that they appreciate. Horror yes. writers mention this film. And so Dead I think Meat that's recently really, did an de- episode on, on it and got Nathan, can't remember his last name, uh, the gentleman who plays Leslie, thank yeah. you, to, to do a cameo on there. You know, I mean, this is a film that is still registering in the cultural sort of community, like you said, this is a film horror people know. And it's so fascinating because like when it kind of came out, it was just, it was not really given a proper release. Um, No. The director sat down in in an interview with horror news um, and kind of talked about the process of making this film for that because the studio was like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You're going to get a film release. But he reveals on the article what that means is like you're going to get a release in the in like 2025 cities that have critic <laughs> major film critics. And because the film is on the lineup in their city, they can they have to like the, the Washington Post, for instance, has to send a reporter to go review their film. And so then they can get a, a nice review from the Washington Post for their film. It's an advertising thing rather than like a chance for people to actually connect and see the film. Yeah. Um, and so the film itself wasn't really given a proper release. It's box office. It only made $69,000 um, in release, uh, which is very, some very small amount. Yes. Uh, and so, but it did have quite, the director talked and revealed in this interview, it had a, quite an extensive life on places like Shutter and uh, on just like when it came out on DVD and other platforms like that. So, and it's got, it's really grown over the years. And so, yeah, that was a, that was a really interesting interview. And that re- the person who did that interview actually joked that the director that on the first time he wasn't a super big fan of the film, 
himself because he thought that the film was kind of uh, making fun of the genre, and he's a more he he was looking for more of a straightforward uh, film. And the director kind of talked with him, and it's like, well, I hope you see that it's made from like a place of love, and and it was like we're doing these tropes not because we think they're stupid or like people shouldn't enjoy them, but like because we we want people to think about what's going on here and kind of have fun with that. And the person doing the interview was like, oh yeah, yeah, I got that. I and he's like, I actually watched the film three times before got done. We talked last night before we talked about this today because i just i like it so much now but like i said a lot of great interviews out there yeah it's really interesting that that interviewer sort of felt the first time that it was it was making fun of because we've talked about this before right that you know there are these films that you're like i'm not sure you remember who's actually paying to see this film right because the person the people who are paying to see it don't want to be mocked and I never felt that way, right? I always felt like it was either making questions that like just a person who has intelligence would ask like, how come whenever they walk, they still manage to catch up to them? Or like, how can they always pretend to be dead? Like it felt like it was just playful answers to questions that we acknowledge are actually just ridiculous, right? Like it doesn't make logical sense, most of what happens in a slasher film. And yet this film gives us some some just amusing answers to the to the questions yeah and i want to be kind to this person here because i don't think that they said i think that they really did like this may be more of the approach of like someone who just watches it like more casually like i'm gonna yeah. let me read what they said they're like they mentioned they had read a newspaper review but didn't have a chance to see it in theaters because it wasn't showing where they were and when they checked it out when i bought it i got i went home to watch it and i wasn't too impressed i didn't get it i remember reading the newspaper review being kind to it but uh, so and I had to rewatch it a couple times before I got what you were up to. Call me a dunce, but it took me a while to realize that it takes all the tropes of a serial killer movie and turns them on their ear. For someone who follows this kind of movie, you do appreciate it that much more. It's smart. Okay. It doesn't talk down to its audience. It doesn't make fun of the audience either. It takes these kind of films, the Friday the 13th and Halloween films, rationally in a sense. And you guys thought of rational explanations for a lot of the impossible things that killers in other movies do. So like I said, like he did that yeah. for the first few times, wasn't a huge fan, but like, this is clearly someone who did their homework and like has a lot of respect for the craft doing this interview. And so, yeah. And I, I want to talk about something they, they said that I think is really important. And that is that, you know, the film is not making fun of, of the fans. And Taylor's a really good example of that because she is so excited, right? Like, even though she's trying really hard to to be this sort of like, reporter who's got it you know has removed herself from the equation there's that that scene where leslie is super excited about the ahab and she's like whoa we have an ahab and she's like what's an ahab you know and (laughs) and there are these instances kind of throughout where she really cares about leslie right and and there's there's even that like potential sort of feeling that that she is romantically uh, interested in in leslie which of course also plays out intriguingly in terms of thinking about the final girl. And and I think that if as one of the stand-ins for us, right, we we get to see how easy it is, right, to sort of be sucked into the the magic of of a slasher film. And I guess that's like perhaps like an interesting commentary on like the people who maybe watch horror films and like get the allure of that because and it is an in, in, because she's also not a final girl in the traditional sense. 
she's a right. final woman. She's like, this is an adult. Like, yeah. she's not, she's not a kid. Like, they make some comment on that. Like, she's not going to be able to defeat him. She's like a 17 year old. Like, we're adults. Like, when talking to the camera, where her cameramen are like, we have to go intervene. We have to help. Like, these are children who, who we are documenting. And so I, I think that it's interesting for in that regard, in terms of being like there are adults in the situation able to act. And it's also interesting that in that situation, there's some kind of sexual desire because that's so yes. frequently commented on as something that the audience is experiencing. And it's a theme that's so frequent uh, in the genre itself. And one of the things that's interesting, particularly now that I know that Gene is sort of a stand in for Black Christmas is, of course, his wife, Jamie, right? Where you're like, what is what is happening with this? Because she she presents as a final girl herself, right? We don't, she wasn't the final girl for Gene necessarily, but like she's much younger than him. And, you know, she's kind of, she she presents as very feminine in a lot of respects. And yeah. and yet there's a line about how she chased him, right? So she pursued him. So there's there's a way in which this film is just, again, reminding us that like the relationships that we have with the genre the relationships that characters have in the film themselves, right? It's weird, right? It is an odd relationship, even if it is an incredibly alluring one. Absolutely. I think that's so true. And so, and I think it's interesting, like we talked briefly about like the film's release, like when it came out and there's been a little bit of trouble, like getting any future films or development or projects. Like there's always been some kind of chatter from various people throughout the years, like people will do some interviews and they'll be like, yes, it's coming. Or like, we've got a new idea, like the other one, so it didn't quite pan out. And then there was a quote from recently from, I think it was either the director or the writer who was like, not really sure if this concept would work in a film because the genre itself has changed so fundamentally since we first were kind of releasing things uh, in film. And there is actually a follow-up that was released really? not in film form, but in comic book form. Um, Ooh. It's called Before the Mask, The Return of Leslie Vernon, That's the long-awaited remake to Beyond the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon. So it was the result of a crowdfunding campaign. And so while the creative team is not super on board anymore with kind of, or they said a couple of years ago that they weren't sure that they could make the film uh, in that interview with Kevin Hover for Horror Obsessed. This film star is open to doing something. He, That'd be cool. he is kind of, he's interested. He's like, I'm not, I think that the genre, he acknowledged it in the interview that while the genre had evolved, that he does think that it might be interesting to evolve with it. Like he posits some funny things. He's like, well, I think like Leslie might try to jump on some like internet trends to try to attract people. <laughs> he would be doing things to attract a modern audience to kill. And I was like, that's a fascinating thought process you've got going there. It is. And and I think that that he's absolutely correct that this film could easily, easily in terms of as a viewer, not not necessarily as a creator, it would take some some consideration as a creator, but could perfectly fit into where the genre is now. And and in a way that that allows it to continue commenting on it. Because what's important is is that this is not a scary movie right film where yeah. it's like you know just doing pastiche of things and being like remember this scene okay well we're just gonna make it funny here and then right. like filling in the 
the moments with like pop culture reference. Right. No, right. That, that's not what this is. No. And, but this is still a film that is, you know, cognizant of the genre. And I think that, that we could, you know, he could easily come in and, and sort of be a like, Hey, how come we don't even have Freddie, Jason and, and Michael really anymore? How come we have them? But they're, you know, so different. Cause obviously this, they're all getting reboots, right? Scream is continuing yep. on. Chucky, we finished our Halloween cycle until the next time someone adopts it. Friday the 13th is giving a TV show. It now would actually be the perfect time to, to sort of reimagine this version of the slasher film with Leslie Vernon. I would love for them to do it. I, I could see why they might not want to as the director and writer that they might want to move on to other stuff, but... I could also see perhaps, like, in those bit of transit like there's a lot of time between 2006 and now and like now that has happened like in some of those years less than the horror genre was not at its best yeah it, it has certainly come along like really come really gotten i think quite impressive since like 2015 like it's just yes. like we like we are really turning out banger after banger but like yeah there was a 10 year period a where it was a little fallow yeah yeah <laughs> and you know, if, if they wanted to, they could really play on the idea that that just like Leslie, you know, turned to Jean, that some someone could be wanting to apprentice under Leslie. Because one of the things that I really like about this film is is just how likable Leslie is. As an yeah. actor, he the actor kind of reminds me of the actor who's who plays um Norman Bates in Psycho, right? Because he's got sort of that like boyish charm about him. He's so like genuinely excited about the work he's doing in the film. You know, there's that moment where he's like crying and Taylor's holding his hand because he's just so happy. And and it would be interesting to sort of see like how has he evolved post his first, you know, sort of entry into having a final girl being, quote, killed by the final girl, you know, coming back. I, I could see it being a really interesting examination. I, I would like them to do that. But I also understand there's the fear too, right? Of like, when you have a cult classic and you can't fully explain why it's a cult classic, I could see how that would be hard to, to feel like you want to be vulnerable enough to make a second film that could flop, considering that a lot of fan requests have flopped, right? I am thinking view Hocus Pocus too, uh, you know, and things like that. But, but I think that's something that, that would be intriguing to explore. We would love to hear from you about your thoughts of, of Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon. If people want to get a hold of us, Tony, what do they need to do? They need to follow us on social media. And by need, I mean, if you'd like to, we, we'd, <laughs> really, we'd really appreciate it. You don't yeah. need to do this. But if you'd like to get in touch with us, that's a great way. Or via our email, uh, which is all, all of this is in the description of the pod. Feel free to give us a rating wherever you're listening to this podcast on. This helps us get on the charts there. And that would be yes. also greatly appreciated. I want to make sure to thank Jackson O'Brien, who is our fantastic editor and makes it so that everything sounds so much better, both in terms yeah. <laughs> of the sound quality, but also in terms of those moments where I can't remember something and then the silence is edited out so that it sounds like I always about? knew. We I know, I know. sound this smart. <laughs> yeah, we do. And we do because of Jackson. So thank you so much, Jackson. Thank you, Jackson. 
Tony, what is our next episode going to be on? So our next episode is one I'm actually very excited about. We are going back to the Friday the 13th franchise, and we're going back in a big way. We're going to go back for Friday the 13th, part eight, Jason Takes Manhattan, the 1989 <laughs> film. i never seen it. It just at this point sounds like the last film they were trying to win an Oscar and this film, they're going to go to Manhattan. I guess they're going for the Tony. I, you know, I would be okay with that. And there's so much that I want to see, like, that I just know won't be in this film, but that is in my heart's version. Like, I want to see him take in a Broadway show. Absolutely. And and I know that's probably not what happens, but I actually don't know because I also haven't seen it. But we will see it, and then we will talk about it, and it will be terribly exciting. So you should definitely stay tuned for that. We just want to thank you so much for always listening to our nightmares. And have a spooktacular day. Bye.